Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kanji, and this week I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Patrick Chun, founder and managing partner of Juxtapose. Based out of New York, Juxtapose can best be described as a creation-oriented investment firm that leverages expertise to launch and invest in companies. The firm currently has over $500 million in AUM across their funds. I learned so much recording this episode as Patrick was able to offer great insights from his extensive experience in creation-oriented investment models, including leading bills at Accretive and Thrive, as well as working at top venture and growth equity firms like Bain Capital and Francisco Partners. This is a really special episode for anyone interested or curious about co-creation or studio models. And without further ado, let's get right into the episode. This episode of Venture Unlocked is brought to you by Omni. Omni is an investment analytics company dedicated to improving private capital markets. Omni's proprietary technology digitizes hard-to-track, unstructured data from private transaction agreements and organizes it in a structured database through an intuitive dashboard. For investors of all sizes, the insights that are provided by this data improve the manager's ability to build strategy and make better decisions. Today, Omni tracks data from over 250,000 private market transactions to provide anonymous, aggregated market benchmarks. I'm also incredibly excited how Omni's solution helps fund managers provide more insightful and accurate reporting to their investors. To learn more, check them out at www.omni.fund. That's A-U-M-N-I dot fund. Listeners of Venture Unlocked can sign up for 20% off when you mention Venture Unlocked. Patrick, it's good seeing you. Hey, Samir. Good to see you too. I've been looking forward to this chat for a while, actually, and, and I know how unique your model is. But maybe we can start with your background and what really inspired the start of Juxtapose. I won't spend too much time going way back, but I'll, I'll maybe just at, at the highest level, I, I think I've always personally been very fascinated with the disruption. My, my family immigrated from Korea to the States uh, when my dad was studying engineering in, in Indiana, actually, which was where I was born. And, uh, you know, I kind of grew up my whole life surrounded by computers. And um, I, I think also when you grow up as an immigrant, um, or in an immigrant family, I think you also sometimes look at the world with a slightly different lens of, you know, there is, you know, you're entering this other place and you're trying to figure out and understand this place. Uh, I think from the early age, you know, when I was in high school, I was, you know, playing around with 486s and when computers were improving and you could fix and kit that out, you were doing that. The internet emerged when I was, when I was in, in junior high and high school as well. And, and even when I went to, when I went to Harvard to study, um, I focused on economics, but my main focus area, including where I got a master's, was in um, in economic history of, of emerging economies. And what really fascinated me about emerging economies was the fact that there was such a thing as economies that emerged, right? So what, what are they emerging against? What allowed some economies to emerge rather than others? And, you know, even if rural GDP is going up, emerging, emerging economies over time take GDP from established economies. And, um, and, and so that was always intellectually fascinating. I, I would say the, um, the, the start to my, my passion that eventually led to juxtapose and specifically our kind of company creation oriented model. You know, some of it started from more of my traditional investing and kind of business background, right? So I, I, I spent some time in growth equity and private equity at Francisco Partners. This was in 0506. This is when the, you know, the bubble had popped. There was a, a big deflation and then people were starting to get excited again about tech. 
you know, when I was a senior in, at Harvard, you know, Zuckerberg had just launched FaceMash that became Facebook on campus. Everyone on campus was excited again about tech. And, um, you know, I spent some time in more traditional roles. It was uh, a little bit more than a decade ago that I, um, as I was at Bancap Ventures, I was doing traditional um, venture, great platform, great people. Um, I had been introduced to a, a gentleman named Michael Klein. And Michael was the, the founder of a firm called Accretive, which, you know, I think is a firm that a lot of people in New York know if you kind of are, are obsessed with the history of company creation and systematic company creation. And I was introduced to him and, and learned about this model for the first time, which actually was very counterintuitive to what I had come to believe about how innovation happens in technology. Namely, that there were firms that could systematically in a way that was very process-driven and rigorous, not just invest in companies, but actually start at the inception stage of companies. And it was there. Um, and so long story short, I found a way to get a job with Michael. Um, he hired me. I, I eventually was leading a lot of his own healthcare work. And it was there for the first time that I saw this process in place. Um, and I saw systematic alpha value creation happening where all of these insights, this research, this process actually then led to the creation of something, not the investment of something. And, and so, yeah, that's where it started. I ended up um, going to Thrive Capital, where actually Thrive has a, has a, has a really successful incubation practice. Um, Josh at the time, uh, Josh Kushner, was, you know, had this idea that a lot of people, including some LPs and definitely people on the outside, would, thought was crazy, which was to start a health insurance company. Um, I got to know him in that context, especially given how much health insurance, healthcare company kind of creation we were doing at, at Accretive. Um, you know, Josh invited me over to kind of focus on that sort of work. Um, and it was after my time at Thrive, where I saw a bunch of really young, hungry entrepreneurial folks launch a great fund from scratch, where I was inspired to, you know, I was inspired to think about what was the best that I learned from Thrive, the best I learned from Accretive, and does that create a new, you know, game-changing fund in Juxtapose? You and I briefly talked about this before we got on and started recording, which is the venture model itself or the venture landscape has actually substantially shifted over the last decade, decade plus. Prior to that, you know, the last 40 or 50 years, all venture funds approximated the same. Invest typically at the early stages. You have a number of different partners making decisions based on a pool of capital. And most portfolios had 25 to 35 companies. And it was very much a classic investment model. And over the last decade, we've seen everything from solo GPs and micro VCs and this rise of this notion and concept of studio models or co-creation models. Still, I, I think that area of the market is still fairly limited in terms of the number of players. And I think there's a lot of confusion in terms of what it actually is. If I'd love to get your perspective on your view of what does it mean to be a co-creation uh, type of platform? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And I think the confusion exists partially because it's still quite a confusing market. And, and again, I think when you think about, you know, this idea of venture capital, broadly, the traditional series A and series B venture fund, like when that was starting to emerge in the eighties or nineties, there was, there were also a bunch of different flavors. There wasn't, it wasn't a big enough asset class to say, this is the model. You know, I think when accelerators were starting for the first time, there were all sorts of things, people with houses where there are five people accelerating the tech stars and the YCs emerged. And I think we're kind of still in some ways uh, in the earliest stages of that definition happening more institutionally 
within you know what I would describe as the creation oriented investment model or the studio model as you, as you as you put it I think the big delineation that you're starting to see now in the creation oriented model which largely is what it sounds like uh, it's an investment fund or some form of holding company or corporation that serially creates companies and usually you know the difference and by the way Samsung and Google serially creates companies too the difference between what I would describe as a studio model or a creation model and traditional corporate is that those companies one are stood up to be independent and two usually involve some form of external entrepreneur external talent that comes to run that business right and and so like i just want to start with that because i think the fundamental base unit of capitalism is creation so you know being a creation model you're just saying creating companies like there are tons of sbas small businesses created every year what where where we are now on the evolution is there are a lot of studio developed studio models that are effectively more serial entrepreneurs that find a platform to serially build. And by the way, serial entrepreneurs always existed. They always invested in other companies, sometimes as advisors. So some form of that has always existed. I think the institutionalization of that version of company company creation of which there's a lot of studios more and now more to what we're doing at Juxtapose and probably a few of our our, our kind of peer funds where we're actually a fund. You know, we, um, you know, we happen to focus at the inception stage of things, but structurally, you know, we have a blue chip LP base. We have a process that we're, that we're, that we report out to. Um, we have a portfolio that's structured. We have an investment thesis and investment strategy. We have expected return profiles for our, for our LPs. And I, I think the general challenge that I, I think, so I think in the, in the general model, you're seeing different forms of serial entrepreneurship emerge. Some have more structure, some have more people, some have a better, to be, if I was going to be honest, some have better product market fit with all the important constituencies. Your, you know, the people you're going to hire on your team, the entrepreneurs you want to work with, the other co-investors that have to put money in. And if you're a fund, the most important one, many, in many ways, your LPs. Um, I think people, I think there's a lot of experimentation there. I think the ones that have crossed the chasm to being more institutional, if they, if they, if they want to have figured out a way to create a bit more of a virtuous flywheel between all of those different parties, where I think one party that's really hard to make that flywheel work for is your, is the LPs. And I could talk more about that if, if you're interested, but um, I think getting that flywheel to work is the thing that you're starting to see some funds find figure out now. An area that I'd like to maybe double click on a little bit more is I made this comment earlier about the lack of the number of overall co-creation platforms versus traditional VCs. And part of it, I'd attributed to the degree of difficulty to actually execute the model. And you, you mentioned a number of things. You have to find entrepreneurs that, or CEOs that join the companies that you're co-creating. You're getting the right team that really has that entrepreneurial spirit. You have to have LPs that really understand and believe in that type of model. And then ultimately, you have to build companies and do the research necessary to get an idea from idea phase to actually being a viable, fundable company. You maybe walk through the process of how does this actually work in terms of creating a company from scratch? I think there are different variations of this, but I can tell you the juxtaposed model. We're a concept and business opportunity first creation fund, which means we, uh, and Michael Klein, I think used an analogy back in the days at Al Crib, which is, you know, oftentimes you could build a team around an athlete or you could build a team around a sport. And um, the, the good thing about building a, a team around a sport or, or building an opportunity around a sport is then you know exactly what the gold medal athlete looks like, right? His whole analogy was, I think, Michael Jordan 
you know, best basketball player of all time, my, very talented minor league baseball player, good at golf, but there's probably a pro, there's probably a varsity high school friend that's better than Michael Jordan at golf. And so um, if you know what sport, you, you know, Michael Jordan's a lot more value, valuable in basketball than in other sports. And, and so, you know, for us, we kind of lead with that, that diligence, right? And so what that looks like practically for us, we'll have, um, we have a bow tie process that we describe as concept development. It's a combination of very deep commercial business-like work. You know, we have folks on our team that, you know, come from private equity funds, hedge funds, venture funds that spend a lot of time, I think, figuring out the questions that if I was going to, you know, broadly characterize it, like a venture capital firm or a private equity firm would deeply need to believe to invest in a company. That work is intertwined with what we describe as, as user research and, 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 uh, con- and design concept development. And I think that part of our model is probably in some ways even more unique because unlike an investment firm where you get something shown to you and you're saying, does this make sense? For us, once we say we want to do this, we have to go and build the thing. And so the, the user and concept development work, which you know involves a lot of ethnographic research, it's the playbooks of places like Google. You know, we have a team member from Instagram and Facebook, a bunch of alumni from IDEO, where they do a lot of design-led thinking, um, helps us to try to figure out the what is it and will it resonate. And that bow tie process will take a couple of years. And it's not a couple of years of just one thing, but there are different things that are advanced in the funnel. Much like you know, you could get to know an entrepreneur nine months before you know, they're ready to raise, like there's, there's a funnel. And, and so that, that process for juxtapose in an average year will get us to maybe two to three things that we really have deep conviction on. And this goes to our model, which is we're a do few things, do them well, deep conviction, concentrated portfolio model, um, which I, I love, I'm proud of, I think works for our fund and our LPs. And this goes back to building a flywheel that works for your strategy. Once we have that concept greenlit in our parlance, which means we're, we, we, want, we know this thing is something that has both a wedge thesis, short-term squint, long-term thesis that works, then we'll go out and find, if it's basketball, Michael, Michael Jordan, if it's golf, Tiger Woods. Like We're going to go and find the perfect person for that sport. And that process will also sometimes take over a year. Um, you know, sometimes it's people we know, and we have a, you know, we have a founder CEO team, which again, we have in our fund. Most funds don't have that because they, you know, their full-time job wouldn't be just finding founder CEOs. Um, we have a founder CEO team that is building longitudinal relationships with potential candidates, but are all, that's also saying, okay, once we know the sport, can we not just go to the people that we already know, but go and try to find that exact gold medal athlete that you're looking for. And, and, and once we have that, once we identify that person, we could talk more about you know, how we get them. That's when a business starts. So that is, that's day one of a company. I do want to get to the selection of the CEO and, and the archetype of the type of CEO that typically would be a right fit for, for a model like this. One area that I wanted to key on a little bit, you mentioned you know, two to three companies per year that you have conviction on that you're launching, which of course is a departure from your traditional venture fund that's investing four to eight companies, sometimes even more per year. And we've seen extremes where some funds have 100 plus portfolio companies, smaller ownership stakes, but also de-risk because there's a lot of diversification in the portfolio. In your case, you're still effectively investing in early stage companies. I would presume that a big part of what you have to do is modulate the level of risk. So you mitigate to a level that's more private equity-like. And so I wanted to get a sense of how you think about your model, private equity and venture, because on one hand, 
the risk of private equity is, you know, I invest in a, in a private equity fund. I do not expect those companies to go to zero, but I don't expect a five or 10 or 15 or 20 X. In your model, you, you are looking for venture scale in these type of companies. So how would you actually characterize your firm and, and the uh, investment? Is it more private equity? Is it more venture? Is it a hybrid? I love the question because I think it's kind of a little bit of both and kind of a little bit of neither. Um, and I, But I think you hit the point, which is our, the opportunity set that really attracts Juxtapose are opportunities that have private equity-like downside, but still have venture upside. And I think the, the natural next question that usually comes to us, either from a skeptic or from an LP or from a really smart person is, well, obviously everyone wants that. So if that exists, then you know, why isn't everyone doing it? And the two answers are, one is there's a reality. There's not infinite number of those opportunities. And so um, you know, I think part of the question that um, I, I often get around how much we can scale, I think the truth is you know, our kind of creation model doesn't scale infinitely, which we accept. The second thing is, I think we put parameters around what we're going to look for such that, you know, most things, some things that that could work in a traditional venture context and could become huge companies, huge companies, we are intentionally okay saying no to because it doesn't fit. And, I, you know, one construct that we use that we I think helps to define that risk return profile is this idea of a business wedge and a business squint. So, like, I think for the squint, it's easier to explain. I think the squint vision for any business that we have is the, you know, 7, 10, 12, 15 year vision around how a really large industry or a large behavior becomes commonplace, how a value chain shifts, how your business sits in that middle of that value chain. And you are now the dominant player in, you know, a really important part of, to simplify, like US GDP. Like that is a squint vision. I think, you know, any great venture um, idea um, especially ones where there's not clear evidence that it's going to work early days, needs to have a really great squint vision. We will only choose businesses where we really believe deeply that there is a $10 billion plus squint vision there. I think the the thing that we add to that, that again, goes back to this, there's going to be trade-offs, it limits your opportunity set, and probably even if we wanted to go from 40 people to 100 people, we can't massively expand or if we wanted to stay really high high hit rate, we can't expand it too much is that that business also has to have a wedge and, and the wedge uh, kind of, you know, the really quick um, explanation is two to four years. We're touching on a pain point um, at a business opportunity where we've defined the product. We understand who the consumer is. We've talked to hundreds, thousands of consumers. We've built prototypes. That product usually has some semblance of a customer acquisition funnel. It has some sem- semblance of unit economics. That's all diligenceable. And so you could build out a model where, you know, I, what is it? What's the saying? Like you can't, you can't score a run, you know, you can't score a home run without touching first base. Like we know we're going to get on first base. And I think that that value proposition, getting both of those things to exist in a business is actually quite hard. There are a lot of things where you're like, I love the wedge, but there is no squint. I love the squint, but there is no wedge. Um, oftentimes, by the way, we look at a business and say there is a wedge and a squint, but it was very hard to know what kind of gold medal athlete we could partner with to go and get both. And so that, that is, uh, you know, it's a very constraining factor in what we do, but it allows us to be really focused and build businesses that really fit our mandate. I love the framework of wedge and squint in your investing model. And I'm curious, as you look at putting capital into companies and it, beyond that, even creating these companies, what are some common characteristics of companies that meet both the squint and wedge requirements? I think the first thing that I would probably point to, which is probably very consistent with most venture funds, is 
is is the is some form of existing TAM that's relatively large, and I think that de-risks both what we're starting with today, and 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 has it, and you you have more conviction that if the thing that you build over the next two four two to four years works, you could still diligence today what that thing might look like in five to ten years. And so, like I think said another way, if there's massive consumer behavior change that's completely unpredictable, or there's fundamental R and D that we have no idea how it commercializes or when. Like those are, you know, I think Snapchat was built off of disappearing apps. And there's a, a lot of examples of really great R&D businesses that were that, or even like a search engine that had no business model that suddenly figured out how to match consumers and advertisers, right? Like that, that's really interesting. That's not juxtaposed model. And so, you know, that's a good example of two things that we probably wouldn't lean in um, because the, the TAM of identifying how many people want to do that and what the business TAM is, what the market opportunity for, you know, gross margin dollar value creation is very difficult to define. Um, so I think I would start with TAM. And so if you look at our businesses, you see a range of things in real estate, in healthcare services, in consumer health, in um, financial services, in e-commerce enablement. Like these are big categories, defined dollars, defined pain points. Um, I, I would say the second thing that um, usually uh, that we usually look for that aligns both with a wedge and a squint is some sort of product opportunity that when we start with day one puts the incumbents or competitors in a bad place because they cannot respond. Right. And so this kind of goes to, I think to disruption and this is, it sounds slightly academic, right? But like practically speaking, if you have a cost structure that doesn't require physical offices, I'll just give you an example. And all of the incumbents, because up until 15 years ago, people wouldn't, see advisors, health advisors, financial advisors, wouldn't never do it over the telephone and definitely video didn't even exist. They all by definition have that cost structure. They have that infrastructure. If you can, and, and by the way, by going tele, by going you know video virtual, you have a favorable cost structure. So if you really believed not only you have a better model to serve the customer, but you have a cost structure that the incumbents can't respond to, that's great short term you're going to get your traction, but it's also great long-term because you're starting from a place where you have 30 to you know, 300 to 400 um, or 30 to 40% more margin to compete against. And so, you know, we think about it kind of in, in that context. I would also venture to guess that there are situations where there is a case for both the wedge and the squint, but one stronger. You can make a stronger case for the squint where the, the wedge case might be a little bit more uncertain or vice versa. The wedge is incredibly strong. The squint is a little bit more difficult and requires a little bit more imagination to get there. In those situations, is there one that you lean toward and how do you handle when there potentially is one that's much clearer than the other? So we have a scorecard. <laughs> the, the short answer is we, if both are on the margin, if we don't have strong conviction, we'll deprecate the venture because we're only trying to get to three and we're looking at hundreds of things per year. And the bar is very, very high. And our flywheel works when we have a low failure rate. Our flywheel works for our LPs when things work because we have such few investments. Everything is premised. Our team is there. Our team has joined Juxtapose because they love the idea of doing a few things and doing them well. And so the whole flywheel is kind of it revolves around this, this, this focus on, you know, if it doesn't meet a very, very high bar, then let's just not do it. Um, I, I think to your question more specifically, I would say the, and uh, you know, if my colleagues hear this, I wonder if they're going to agree or disagree. But 
Um, the more controversial thing that probably does we probably do lean into most, most often is killing it if the wedge doesn't really thing. And I think that's because it goes back to this first base example. Like you can't circle the bases unless you get on first. And if you don't get on first, you have no chance to circle the bases at all. And so the the thing about uh, a portfolio of 40 companies where three companies return the fund and more is you have a lot of swing and miss opportunities. Our model just doesn't allow for that. And so I think we spend a lot more time understanding, does this wedge really thing? You know, we'll, we'll build out full financial models. We'll talk to hundreds, thousands of patients. We'll offer patients or customers. You know, there was an example in one of our businesses in real estate where we were spending so much time at the property manager, property manager in-person conferences that Juxtapose became a known entity amongst some of the best talent in property management. They're like, we don't, I think they're an investment fund. I don't know exactly what they do. They're kind of private, but Juxtapose is everywhere. We're almost like a sponsor of the, because we were getting so deep even before we started the company. One area that I'd love for you to maybe provide color to us is because you're having fewer companies per portfolio, you really need the base case or at least the downside case to be at least a single or a double. When those singles and doubles happen, they need to count in terms of being material contributors to fund returns. And to me, that speaks to high ownership versus traditional fund that is getting, you know, anywhere between five and 20%, you know, at that first round of capital. How does it work from a ownership standpoint when you're co-creating these companies? And what is the fund math as you are building out your portfolio construction? On the fund math, I mean, the simple version of, of Juxtapose is we will work on eight to 10 companies per fund. Fund will be three to four years. It's a pretty concentrated portfolio for a relatively long period of time. Um, these you know, eight to 10 positions are you know, what I would describe as pillar positions. Like We have to have deep conviction and we have to put all the pieces in place and have our 40-person team now for all well, between 30 and 40 now, like approaching 40, like really focused on making these, these eight, eight to 10 things a success. And so that's, that's our promise to our LPs and our kind of our ownership promise is that we'll be significant owners in each business, even up until the later stages of the business. And so every company is a little bit different, but, you know, at the tail end of a business, and we now have several that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars and are kind of you know, maybe not in today's market, but we're considered, you know, are considered pre-IPO businesses. Like, you know, we will still own 20% plus, sometimes significantly more of that business. Um, this kind of ties your question around kind of the ownership model and structure. And, and one where I think, again, we have a very interesting flywheel that works in our model. We, we have a significant portion of the company reserved for not just the founding CEO, but the found, other founders and a deep option pool. The, the general math, I guess the, on a principal level, let me let me describe what we want to be true for our founding CEOs. We want our founding CEO to be able to leverage our two to three years of work, our 40-person team of manpower, our focus, the fact that now our fund is you know pretty material, pretty material, and on average for our more successful companies, we'll put in you know 20, 30, 40, 50 million plus into a business, and have all of that, all of those tailwinds to get them somewhere faster and with less risk, but in, after three or four rounds of funding, or you know, for some of our companies where they don't raise traditional venture funding, you know, let's say five to six years in, this CEO owns median level ownership of a founding CEO, and so and and the way it works, and and the reason because the natural question is like, how does that bridge if you guys are big owners? Is in our model, our model works if our companies build faster, raise at high, raise with less dilution, 
um, if we actually eliminate what I would consider uh, common equity waste or or preferred equity waste. Sometimes a first time, you know, even if you're an experienced CEO, you're starting a company, you have you know these three or four different small rounds, and you have these different parties. All of that is streamlined, and so if our businesses are successful, the CEO wins. They get to the same place. Juxtapose wins. Our LPs definitely win. And for our co-investors, our CEOs and their teams are well compensated. It's not like I would describe as a traditional venture model, a tr- traditional studio model, where sometimes I think you have CEOs that have single-digit percentages and you know it creates you know misalignment. And so you know our companies never really have a hard time raising capital from co-investors. Um, our CEOs are, are are happy. I mean, they always want more, like everyone does. But um, our CEOs are are happy. Our teams are well incented, and the fund model works for our LPs if we create good companies. And that was actually one of the areas that I was going to go in because one of the things that often comes up as a question, you know, for any type of studio or co creation model, is does the ownership that the co creation fund take? in some way create downstream negative effects when it comes to ownership by the founding team, the employees, future co-investors that may look at the cap table and have an allergic reaction. And it sounds like that just simply hasn't been the case with you know the way you've structured it. The short answer is yes, it hasn't been a problem. I think that you know, there will always be you know people or institutions, especially folks either who have misaligned interests or come from a philosophy, you know, sometimes that philosophy holds on to obsolete assumptions. Sometimes it's based on how they think about the world where maybe, you know, that's not this idea that there is another party involved in the creation of a business feels foreign or unfamiliar or uncomfortable to them. But I think, you know, if you look at the track record of our companies, who they're raising from the amounts of money they're raising and how, how, let me, let me give you like a really interesting stat. Like, Generally, in board discussions with our co-investors, we are the ones pushing for our, our, our teams and option pools and CEOs to be compensated more once they're on the same side of the table. And so I, I think that that is generally not, not a problem. I think, you know, we've also been fortunate, if, I was, if I'm bluntly honest, of the last four or five years being pretty friendly to our companies, capital being easier to raise, and also our cap tables feeling very, um, very virtuous. And so, you know, I think... I'm both, you know, looking forward to and getting ready for the challenge as as we face some market turbulence. But overall, I think that that goes back to that initial point where I think we have a virtuous flywheel. And I think where I see when I advise some folks who are who are thinking about some form of studio model, you know, that's the first question I ask. I'm like, how does this work as a win-win-win for everybody? Because what wins for the studio may not win for the CEO. What wins for the CEO may not win for the or or may attract the wrong CEO. You know what wins for the LP may not work for this for the for the, the the founders of the studio, but what works for the founders of the studio won't work for the LP. In which case, it's hard to raise the money from the LP. And so, really figuring out like what your value proposition is and how it wins with everybody is probably like the first thing I give advice to and first question I ask. And there's always so many constituents, of course. And in your case, you have the entrepreneurs or the CEOs that you're bringing, and of course, your LPs, which we'll get to in a second, because I do want to understand because of some of the institutional LPs you have, how they're looking at models like this just more broadly. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the CEOs. Company formation has been an all-time high, continues even in a market that we've seen the economy dislocate pretty dramatically over the last 11 months. What type of CEOs typically gravitate to this type of model? Because one of the questions I had coming into this conversation is if it's an entrepreneur or a CEO that really wants to build a business, 
wouldn't they do something that's in their own vision that they've sort of thought of and, you know, as a unique pain point they want to solve versus actually joining a model like this where the idea has already been created and they're stepping in as really the operator maybe one, two, three years after the company effectively has been founded. This is one of the fun questions that you that you can debate both, you know, in an academic panel and over drinks, right? So, because um, I, I think for me, I would probably respond to your question with a question, which is, what does it mean to come up with an idea? What does it mean for it to be your idea? I bring that up because I think a lot of the best companies that you see, a lot of the best opportunities that kind of pop up, especially in the, in the modern creation age of the last 15, 20 years, it's usually someone who's entering a market they've never been part of before. It's not necessarily like they spent 30 years like working in the garbage industry and they have a new garbage startup. Usually it's by, you know what it's doing? They're talking to really smart people. They're doing research. They're learning about what they're good at and understanding what disruption is happening in the market. And so maybe I would start at the highest level by kind of addressing this question of, of passion and, and conviction and commitment to a space. I think um, what we do for our CEOs, and I'll go back to the, the archetype profile for, for who works well with Juxtapose at least, um, is to give them all of that knowledge with the roadmap. And we don't create the company. They create the company. But we've done so much work that answers, and again, for our archetype of an experienced CEO, a lot of the core questions they have where they think about the risk-return profile of starting this company, what they need to know about what they're good at and if it matches this business, and whether there's alignment on this business becoming a big success. And so like, I, I would start by saying that I actually think we are, we are, working in, we are expediting working in service to, for some of the best founding operators to become founders. They, they could be CEOs of anything. They could spend four years doing work. They could go and be an OIR. But also, and this maybe goes to the second part of the question um, or second part of my answer around the part of the profile of, of, of the right you know, kind of uh, CEO. I think this is a place where a lot of startup studios, especially when I say startup, I don't just mean venture. I mean like first time, small, trying to figure it out, kind of aren't being as thoughtful as maybe they could be, which is they, you know, if your value proposition is you're going to do very little work, you have a small team, you have to own a lot of it, you're going to give very little, you have no capital. Who are you going to attract? Like it's, it's you know, it, this goes back to the flywheel point that I get to again and again, but that doesn't really work. Like if you came to me and told me, I'm going to start a basketball team where I have no resources, it's my idea, I own all of it, I'm going to try to get the best people on the court, I can't pay them, and they're not going to own that much. I'll tell you that's probably a pretty bad idea to starting a basketball team. And and I so I think for our flywheel, our whole business model is um, is oriented around experienced entrepreneurial operators. Um, and and all three of those words are very important for us because it leads. I think that those three qualities are what match really well with one our value proposition and two what we need as juxtaposed to create really great companies. And so for us, um, you know, some like high level stats and. Don't hold me to the exact number, but I think our average CEO is 52, 53. On, on average, they've started two to three things. You know, I think at one point, half, I'm not sure if it's half, have been public company CEOs or public company board members. Like these are real, um, and, and all of our CEOs, not all people with those stats, but all of our CEOs have an evidence track record of being entrepreneurial in the places they've, they've worked, right? And so, um, you know, we have a CEO that was one of the most senior, most executives at Amazon. We have gentleman who left, who led a bank in one of the biggest, um, started and founded a bank in one of the biggest wealth management companies. And, and so for us, for that CEO, 
what they are prioritizing, which I think, again, goes to maybe the point that this CEO profile doesn't have to be the right one for Wall Studios. It's just the right one for us. They're prioritizing the opportunity to take a really massive swing. These are independently successful, independently, usually wealthy individuals who've already been successful, have built thousand person teams. What they are generally looking for that's a little bit different than maybe the 25 year old that's, you know, in an accelerator for the first time. They've already done a lot. What they want to do is get to the point of scale massively quickly and they understand the value of time and they, uh, they understand the pain of time in the desert when you don't know what you're doing. And so our model really serves them. Um, I, I think like, uh, I will say, I, I, looking at other studio models that I, I think, you know, seem to have good product market fit, they understand the entrepreneur they're bringing in, right? Is it the 32-year-old, 34-year-old who, you know, has done Y Combinator once, it didn't quite work out, they're hungry. And part of it's the journey of building and discovering. And like, if you know that, pro- you know, product market fit with the product being the founder is a really important thing you have to figure out in this model. Great insight. One of the things I was actually quite curious about is the average age of the entrepreneurs that were coming in and, and leading these companies. And it, it doesn't actually surprise me that they have the level of experience, both as you know entrepreneurs leading companies, but in some cases, public company CEOs, of course, to execute on this model. And the amounts that you are investing in these companies, you have high conviction in 20, 30, 40 million, as you mentioned. You also have to have the LPs behind you that are supportive of this model. And the classic case is with institutional LPs, which I know you have a blue chip institutional LP base, is that they like differentiation, but not too much differentiation because it's harder <laughs> to get a handle on. And so I, I'm curious, like as you've kind of grown the franchise, how have you gotten these blue chip institutionals comfortable with what is a very unorthodox structure from traditional venture? And what in particular really resonated that you kind of extract as learnings from raising capital. Yeah, we're really thankful for our LP base. Um, and so I think that one, um, I think you're touching on a really important point, which is when you, I think LPs and, and having a fund base gives you a foundation for you to be uh, properly brave and take the proper amount of risk. And and so having, you know, our endowments, our fund to fund, our pension funds, like a real LP base that will be there for a while if we can prove that we can develop our thesis is incredibly gives you an incredible confidence going into the market. I think in terms of how we got there, you know, part, some of this is obviously um, partially a, a factor of, um, you know, where we started. So, so myself, Jet Cairo, who's the, the co-founder, co-founding managing partner of Juxtapose with me, um, we both, we were actually introduced by Michael Klein, who's the founder of Accretive, who, you know, along with, I would put, you know, maybe Kevin Ryan, Barry Diller, some of these late 90s, early 2000s, like luminaries in New York that built these structures where they built companies systematically. Right, whether Ali Corp, Accretive, or, uh, or IAC, and um, I worked with Michael. Jed got to know Michael as a as an advisor, and when we were starting this together, Michael had deep conviction in a model. He knew us personally. He saw me work, but more importantly, he knew the model. And so, um, so one, I think we were very fortunate that, plus some of our track record from KKR and Beacon Light for Jed and for myself from you know Thrive and Bank Cap Ventures and Accretive, it helped us get off the ground because we kind of had a nice melding of experiences that positioned us well. I, I would say that that so that was you know we were fortunate, which I wouldn't you know I wouldn't discount that by any means. I think one thing that we did really well, that, or one thing that I did that we're proud of, is we laid out a vision of what we want to do. Not just in th- not just for the next for the that first fund, but also for the second and third fund that we actually truly believed that we could do that was aligned with our LPs 
and aligned with them wanting to invest in us. And so I think LPs often have a fear and we have a couple of super blue chip LPs that have that literally this fear comes out when you talk with them, which is, yeah, you know, but this thing is kind of, you just want to get bigger. You're going to expand. You want to, you want to do something different. And if you guys have top 1%, 5%, top decile returns, whatever, like it's going to be always that battle. And I think what we've done in fund one and fund two, which we'll probably build conviction, hopefully for our next fund is we've done, you know, we've said eight to 10 companies in three to four years. Our first fund was eight companies in three and a half years. Our second fund, we're, you know, halfway in and we're a year and a half to two years in. And our third fund, which we're not, you know, we're not talking about yet, but you, you know, you won't be surprised when you hear what we're going to do in our third fund. And so I think this idea of that, that we're going to continue to do what we do, stay focused, and we've delivered on that, both in terms of the companies we built, the CEOs we brought on, that's built a lot of confidence with our LPs. And so fund one, we were fortunate with a lot, a bit of our, where we started, our backgrounds, having Michael Klein involved as our, our executive chairman. Fund two, we brought on a, a great suite of new investors, um, many of whom, well, one, they don't really define us as a studio. I think we're kind of usually defined as a very unique venture fund. Um, I don't think there isn't quite yet like a studio bucket, at least for most institutional LPs. Maybe that evolves if there are enough institutional quality studios. Um, but they've put us in, you know, special situations, interesting, unique venture fund. And I think our third fund will probably be an outgrowth of that. But I think the one thing that we've committed to them, which also is aligned with our flywheel is as we grow our resources, what we're going to try to do is not increase pace and not necessarily increase AUM. It's to increase depth and increase the complexity and challenges of what we're facing. Like that's the way we're going to increase alpha and we're going to increase the, the returns to the fund and the returns of the individuals of the fund. And so, you know, even as we talk about some of the, you know, I think I, me- I mentioned to you before, like, uh, you know, we're working on M&A as a component to success in our platform builds. Most venture funds don't consider M&A as a big tool for success. We think that's a way of adding on capabilities that creates alpha for us and for our investors, but it's hard um, and it's more complex, um, but it's actually a really good return on, on, on LP capital. And so there are things like that that we're focused on now. So as you expand and just like a, a company, you're going to evolve, maybe the word pivot isn't the, the, the right word, but there is going to be an evolution of how you model and you're going to find these opportunities like M&A where you bolt on, you know, other companies to create even more value for the underlying entity. And of course, to those LPs, what type of communication cadence do you have with these LPs on an ongoing basis as you're making these new changes? Is there discussions had with those LPs prior to actually changing something or modifying maybe your approach during a fund? For most of the changes that we're making and we're experimenting with, I feel like there's general communication. So, you know, again, for you know, folks who are involved in funds, it's probably, you know, the, the usual, it's the quarterly letters, it's having well, once every six months, once every 12, 12 month check-in with especially our largest, our largest institutional LPs. Um, it's, you know, specific announcements that go out when we're doing something that's different, that emphasizes and specifies what's different. I think that happens, I would say, at, at the points of smaller evolution, so I would say this M&A one is probably a bigger ev- evolution piece. But, you know, if we're trying an experiment where, you know, we're, we're working on a business right now with another top tier venture fund, they joined, you know, at the foundational level and helped to recruit the CEO. We thought that was a really interesting experiment. We didn't ask for permission for that experiment. 
We thought that was very aligned with what we do. In fact, it was unfair advantages and another deep pocket around the table and a really great complimentary venture fund. And so we announced that when we did it. Um, I think the, the bigger, um, the bigger conversations to be had are, are one when you're doing something that wasn't initially in the base of, of, of what you, what you discussed. And so, you know, in the MA example here, we had a conversation with a bunch of RLPs about what this strategy would entail and what it would require from us as juxtaposed, possibly from them as LPs, as well as what we, how we would define success and failure and got, got the soft green light to explore these paths, right? So the truth is the way we're doing this M&A work in, in our current fund, it doesn't require anything, any real exceptions from the fund or said another way, we're doing everything in the constructs of our fund and we're, we have external vehicles that we're also raising alongside that, but we're not changing the contours of the fund. But but we wanted them all bought in because I think the more important you know, uh, question, if this is successful as an experiment is, well, how do we institutionalize it? How do we make it systematic? How do we make sure it's aligned? And how do we drive a process around it? And all of that is going to require significant investor buy-in. Um, and so, so that's what we're thinking about now. And I think it's, you know, I think our general philosophy there is to be very transparent. You know, ask the honest opinions. I think a lot sometimes it's easy when there's an opinion that you think you you might hear that you don't want to hear to not ask for it. And I think we're we're our, our general philosophy is. We'd rather have all the bad news up front. We'd rather know up front, but we'll also go head to head with you if we disagree and explain why it makes sense for us. And um, and then I think you know I think probably in our next fund you'll see some innovation in how we think about funds and fund vehicles if this makes sense for both us and our LPs. We touched on this uh, a little bit earlier in terms of the shift in the venture industry and how much innovation we've seen over the last decade, maybe decade and a half, and it's you know, on one hand coincided with this great bull run where capital was so available. And of course, all of that has reversed over the last year or so. But technology itself, it's hard to debate that it's anything but inevitable in terms of the growth across every single industry and some of the changes that we might see. So I wanted to get your 30,000 foot view, number one, on the, the state of the venture market, the health of it, and because you have such a different model, I'm curious in terms of what you believe to be some of the, the most interesting innovations we'll see in venture of the next decade. I may be a contrarian on, on, on this response to the first part of the question, but I actually feel like the venture ecosystem is very healthy right now. Um, I feel like innovation capital is the way I think about it because venture capital, which used to mean innovation capital, now refers to a very specific part of the stack. Um, but I think innovation capital is both creation and destruction. And, you know, and, and, and there's ebbs and flows in that. And right now we're probably in a moment where there's a little bit more destruction happening, but perhaps because the creation was a little bit too optimistic, but that the availability of for really great entrepreneurs to create great innovations and bring out new technologies that people use and love, that capital exists. And that capital is available to great entrepreneurs and the information, the access to that capital, while maybe not perfect by any means, is getting better. So I, I generally feel like that the general the general trends are good. Um, there's a lot of dry powder out there. There are a lot of smart people, more diverse people with different perspectives, different functional backgrounds, different beliefs that have access to that capital that can deploy that capital and use that capital to prove if that innovation is useful to the country or the world. Like I think that's really cool. Um, I think in terms of like where it's going, I probably have a, my, the best lens in terms of the niche area around around maybe creation-oriented 
uh, venture. And so, um, you know, I think broadly speaking, I think they're, they're, I think asset classes are blurring. And, you know, you kind of see that, you know, you look at these funds that, you know, started as massive growth f- public funds that did only growth investing. And suddenly when markets change, they could only do series A. You have series A funds that have scaled to, you know, become growth equity funds and they do all of them. You have some funds that started small that only do big. You have pension funds that are doing some, you know, in, you know, in Canada that are doing direct investing and you have, so you have this range of like blurring of asset classes. I think what that allows for, like that fluidity of capital, what does that mean? Practically speaking, I think it allows for alpha to be created when you're a specialist at something good, where you're often also blending lines. And so when you think about what we're doing, like when you think about like a Y Combinator or an accelerator, you know, 10, 12 years ago, even not, we're not talking about 30 years ago, people are like, that's not something that institutional investors could put money in. That's not something you could systematize. It can't happen every year. It only happened in this one cohort. And no, it, it's probably a niche class, asset class. It's not infinite. But let me tell you, the number of top, you know, a fund, like half of venture funds, like don't return, you know, above the S&P, like also to be successful in venture is hard. It's hard to be successful in, in, in accelerator style models. I think for I think for what we're doing, I think there will also be, over time, a, a dispersion of really interesting creation-oriented models that work, right? Like I think, you know, not everyone will necessarily target the 52-year-old three-time CEO. Um, not everyone will have a high hit rate concentrated fund portfolio strategy. And if you really dig and look in the markets and see what Alicorp is doing, what Thrive has done, what, you know, Sutter Hill has done for 30 years very quietly, um, other models like, you know, very different, but the beta works, the IACs, the Idea Labs, like, there have been different forms of creation-oriented um, investing that have worked. And I think what will happen as more firms succeed, and I think we, we're in a place right now where creation-oriented models work better than others for a bunch of reasons, you'll just start to see different flavors of those emerge. And a lot won't work in some will. And so I'm, I'm excited for that. Like that's 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 what um, you know LPs give GC, G, GPs models. So we have a chance to prove that we can innovate. Um, GPs give investors and entrepreneurs money. To give them a chance to show that they could improve and innovate, and that's just uh, uh, part of the part of the fun of, of being in the ecosystem. Yeah, that's incredibly well said, and I would agree with everything you said. And I just wanted to again congratulate everything you and Jed have been able to build, along with the rest of the Juxtapose team, in a very short amount of time. I still remember meeting you when you were launching Fund One, and it seems like, in some ways, a long time ago. But you know, it's only been a few years, and it's just been fun to see really the uh, the growth of the franchise and, and really looking forward to uh, to the future here. Oh, Samir, so, yeah, I remember that quite well, too. I remember both in our offices and then hanging out when we were out in San Francisco uh, trying to get to our first close. And so it's, it's great to, to see what you're doing for the ecosystem and also what you're building at Allocate. So appreciate you, uh, you inviting me on. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Patrick. To learn more about Juxtapose or Patrick, be sure to go to ventureunlock.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, don't forget to leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 